shout out to ABC After School Specials. They didn't even impact. I thought, I mean, I think that that's the reason I didn't do like crazy drugs was ABC After School Specials. <laughs> and my mom who told me I was going to die for sure. <laughs> She's like, if you try it, you're dead. Welcome to Signal, the podcast that raises your frequency. I'm Maury Fontanez, Purpose and Intuition Coach. And I'm Melissa Grushka, and I think therapy should be required by law. Agreed, Bean. <gasps> this Thanks. is an exciting episode. I'm really we have a excited. Guest. Yay, we're so professional. I know. We're talking about therapy with an actual psychotherapist today. Are you ready to get into it? Always. Before we get into this week's episode, just a quick warning for our listeners that this episode does feature mentions of suicide and self-harm. All right, guys, welcome back to Signal. Thank you again to all our listeners who have been listening and following us. Just as a quick reminder, if you want to support the show and me and Melissa in any way, we would love, love, love and appreciate all of your shares, your reviews uh, of the podcast, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you can leave us a review and please share it with your friends. We want to get as many listeners as possible uh, as we continue this conversation about growth, self-help, yeah. growth. Thanks. Love, spirituality. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you all. All right, Bean. Yeah. What's going on? How's your week been? Good. We just got back from the shore, honestly, so it hasn't been much of a week of activity other than relaxation by the seaside. Tell us about the shore. Well, the shore for all of you not East Coast, uh, Northeast (laughs) people is the beach. Um, And us Philadelphians say we go down the shore. That's just how we speak. What was the best part of being down the shore? And what was the worst part? Give Ooh, us the tea. We were with Ooh. friends who we really adore. Um, oh, that wasn't the worst part, hopefully. So that was really lovely. Oh, and we saw dolphins, which is really adorable. You did? Yeah. I love you when did. I see dolphins. And really at the Jersey Shore, I feel like that's something. When you see them like yeah. leaping out of the water. Through the trash. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's really something. It's quite <laughs> really? a juxtaposition. No, we were actually in a beautiful part of the Jersey Shore. Our friends have a beautiful home on the beach. So it's oh, like, nice. Yeah, like literally you walk out onto the beach. Gorgeous. So don't hate. Gorgeous. Don't hate. Congratulate. I'm, I'm not hating. It's true. No, the Jersey I mean, Shore can be yeah. gorgeous. It can, certain it can. spots. There's parts. Yeah. Cool. Well, did any cringy things, any cringy things happen to you? They must have. You on vacation with friends. I just feel like you did something weird. I don't know. I don't think I did. I mean, other than like no. they're very worky outy. So they like wake up and go for runs on the beach and I like just my don't. Dream. Uh, me too. I How really want to be that way. <gasps> See, weren't we just talking about this in the perfectionism episode? Oh, yeah, I want to episode. be that way. That was so. I know. I was in such admiration of them, but then I'm not gonna lie. Like sitting there when they get back all sweaty from their run, and I'm like having coffee in my pajamas on the deck, you have muffin crumbs. On yeah, your chest. like <laughs> dribbling. Yeah, I still have drool from the night before, and they're so functional. I just want to be like, oh. how do I get to that level? I guess by not eating the muffins. There's a certain motivation you have to have, especially to work out on vacation. Vacation. Vacation workarouters. Write us. You can find the link in our show notes. Please tell us how you do this thing. What motivates you to work out on vacation? Exactly. And I had the literal exact thought process. So maybe perhaps that could be my cringe moment. Yeah. Well, that's. I think that's very relatable. Yeah, thanks. Not cringy. Mine's not that cringy either. Mine, oh. since you asked about me. Actually, yes, it's, what about your cringe week? It's very tied in. We have friends. We live on the shore. We live on the coastline of California. Not quite um, the same as the Jersey Shore. Not quite as beautiful no. as the Jersey Shore. Okay. But also, but also not as swimmable. Way colder. I mean, okay. having moved from the East Coast, I do miss East Coast ocean water because it's cold out here in the Pacific. Says no one. But ever. anyways. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. We were at Friends for dinner and lovely couple. We love them so much. They were talking about how <laughs> they swim in the ocean. Oh. Why are you laughing? Because you said lovely couple. I don't know. They are really sounded, lovely. How else very do you goofy. describe lovely people? Oh, we were with friends. Okay, They're a lovely couple. You're right. That did sound right and old. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, say old, it? but I always say old. So I wasn't They're very, say very nice and they're very funny and they're very fun to be around. They're and lovely. anyways, Bean, they were talking about how they swim in the ocean ever since their kids oh, were young. They go out and they swim far, far out in the ocean. Now, 
you know me, so you know exactly what's happening in my heart and mind as the story's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to keep my cool. For you listeners who have not heard this, I have a major shark phobia. Like, (laughs) I know that sounds stupid because everyone's scared. (laughs) Why are you laughing? Everyone's scared of sharks. But mine is a level of paralysis that is abnormal. Maybe our psychotherapist who's going to join can tell me what the hell is wrong with me. But I... um get like heart palpitations. I get shortness of breath. I like even when I see a shark on television. Maybe you were attacked by a shark in a prior life. No, I've had healers tell me that repeatedly. That what? That I was attacked by a shark in a a past life. A hundred percent. I feel like a lot of people do have tremendous fears of sharks. Yeah. I'm going to go get EMDR. Yeah. Is that the right term? Yeah. I'm going to go get that for shark stuff. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm looking into it because it is paralyzing. It is really a terrible fear. So anyway, they're talking and the fear is like rising in my chest and I'm like trying to listen, trying to listen. I'm like, it's fine. They swim in the ocean in the Pacific. Then you like vomit on the table and you're like, then they're like, no, no, no. Then they're like, and we had to go to a meeting where they showed us this presentation about how there is a group of great whites who like to have babies at the beach that we swim in. And we were just being taught about how they don't really want to eat humans. So it's just really if you accidentally bump into them that they, I mean, the conversation went so left that I literally, I'm silent the whole time. And I blurt out, I have a major shark phobia. (laughs) And they were like, okay, (laughs) what do you want us to do? Anyway, so I really, I I think if you ask TJ, who was really squeezing my hand through this moment, um, I kept my cool, I thought, but I just, I blurted it out at the end. And then, and then the friend was like, we can do EMDR on you and fix you. So I'll report back. Oh, are they therapists? Go get it. They are both wow. also psychotherapists. They were really in your head. They were in my head. They knew. Anyway, so I think we've been keeping our lovely guest long enough. I know, Speaking totally. Therapists, <laughs> you are doing these transitions. Mean are getting better and better, and I think you're going to win an award for transitions. I didn't even transition. You said were they therapists? Oh, I didn't oh. do it intentionally. I know. See? All right. She's giggling. She's been patient. Our amazing, amazing guest. This is a very good friend of mine. She is one of the most gifted psychotherapists I've ever met. She is someone who really does blend so much of the work I do around energy and understanding things from an intuitive, empathetic standpoint with the medical scientific world of psychotherapy. So we thought she'd be the perfect person to come on to talk to us, not just about therapy, but also where does therapy work start and energy work stop? And what is the overlap? And when should you see a therapist? All these questions we have. Anyway, without much further ado, Suzanne Delaforno, welcome to the podcast. Our first guest. (laughs) How does it feel to be our first guest, Suzanne? I feel very, very oh nervous. Gosh, honored, Ner- oh, nervous honored. and honored. And I hope I do your first guest justice. I don't know what that means, but you will. <laughs> I'm nervous for you, not because you're not going to be stellar, but because Bean and I don't know how to handle a third person. I don't think so <laughs> we can barely we'll stop talk- talking over each other, let alone a third yeah, person. We'll just talk over you the whole time. Well, I'll be doing deep breathing while you guys talk. It's fine. Good. Okay, good. Good therapy <laughs> tip. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for agreeing to do this. And Suzanne, like I said up top, you know, we really want to get into with you the value of therapy, you know, what it feels like for you as a therapist who also is highly intuitive, where the spirituality and the therapy realm combine, where they should stay out of each other's way. And then also, we thought we'd talk to you a little bit about where therapy is going and the psychedelic world. So are you down for all of those things today? Absolutely. I will try to answer those questions and do and do my best here. <laughs> Can you guys give me a quick uh, synopsis of how you met, please? Since I know oh, she was yes. a friend of yours from Maryland, but that's about all I know. Oh, well, yeah. I bet you that Suzanne's story about how we met could be her cringe moment of the decade. Please. <laughs> it actually <laughs> was the opposite. Aw. Yeah. I love you. I'm so, I be, and we miss you here on I the East Coast. I love you. I know. I miss you so much. Move back. We should talk about this, but Suzanne and another friend of ours, Shanari, and I 
we had we have such an amazing friendship they have been such an amazing part of like my community and just making me feel loved and supported as i try new crazy things like writing books and doing podcasts anyway so that's my another crazy speech (laughs) yeah um all right anyway you tell how we met story oh yeah so we live in a neighborhood uh among i i think our neighbors are, are pretty close together um, in Gaithersburg, where Maury moved from, and we were having a book club meeting. Um, and it was a book that Maury had picked out, and I can't remember the name of the title, but I know we were. It was very um, woo-woo. It was about witches and it's past about lives, witches and past lives, and which, by the way, not to cut you off, but I do just want to say it was my like first pick in this book club of twelve suburban. Women. I'm shocked that you did that. I didn't know them very well. I knew a few of them very well, a couple of them very good friends. But anyway, didn't know most of them. And they had been picking like, you know, the Reese Witherspoon book club picks, yeah. like the things that everyone's reading. And then it was my turn. I picked some book about this witch who like travels through past lives and does magic. <laughs> I want to join that book I can't club. remember the title. I liked it, but I can't remember the title. Good. Yeah. So Maury and her Maury way made these amazing cocktails to go along with the book. And yes, witch's brew. It it was. And I walk in and Maury hands me the cocktail and maybe one or two minutes had passed. And she goes and she looks right at me dead in the eye and she goes, you're an empath. (laughs) You don't even know her. Did I didn't I say, do you sense energies? Oh my god! Yes, yeah. Maybe you started. You maybe had a lead in. <laughs> I said you sense energies. Wow! And yeah. staring her dead on, super dead creepy. On. Love that. That sounds like something I would do, not you. <laughs> so you know, for me, who had wanted to hear that, walking into her party, into a party her whole life, it was pretty. Aww. It was pretty amazing. I felt so seen in that moment, and I go, okay, this this could be potentially my person. Wait, why did you want to hear that walking into parties your whole life? I think because walking into group settings, because I am more in tune with different energies and and different things going on, I feel different people's energy and it's it's hard for me to tune it out. And Mm. so to, to have someone validate that and understand that um, in in particular in a group setting was so validating and so amazing yeah. in that moment. And I remember talking to you later on in the evening more in, in depth about that. And Maury, you're the one that that put really boundaries in place around going into group settings and really helping in that space. Um, and that's why I think your work is so incredible and so important. Um, it's just oh. just knowing that that there is a boundary to to not needing to be that person in every space that you go enter into. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Well, we talked about that first night, how when you're someone who's really sensitive to other people's energy and like you pick that up, it becomes really loud in your head and mm-hmm. it becomes really the foremost thing you're thinking about and that you need to address. So you're not actually then thinking about what you need what you want to say, right. what's going on with you. And you tend to, we talked about, like really socially drink because the drinking right. is what allows you to con- like to tune, tune it out. that out almost. Uh, yeah. So why do I drink <laughs> <laughs> at parties? That's a different story. Being, <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was our story. What yeah. a beautiful meeting though. And that this friendship has endured. It, she really did see you. Yeah, it was it was so fun. I love that. Well, and Suzanne gives that back. I mean, you really feel seen around Suzanne, which really leads me to why I really wanted you as our psychotherapist guest, because mm-hmm. I just have to imagine, I mean, I've never been a patient of yours, but just being your friend, there's a way that you really tune in and tap in and make people feel seen that I have mm-hmm. to imagine in your clinical work is sort of your superpower. So I wanted to just, let's get to know you a little bit, first of all. How did you even get into therapy? Why therapy? Yeah, that's a a really good question. Um, So as a kid, I was pretty sensitive um, to environment. And there was a lot of family dynamics that were going on that I was tuned into and aware Mm. of 
before really knowing or having language to say this, this doesn't quite feel right. Or this, you know, this isn't really how I think things should go or be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then fast forward to middle school. Um, Do you remember those ABC after school specials? That oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I could act one or two out for that you. They were happening, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. Yes. Um, the best time. <laughs> Did you know that Callista Flockhart was in one of those? She really? was. Which one? Everyone's like, who's Callista Flockhart? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Except for us. For our um, 30 and younger, 35 and younger, maybe, um, she played Allie McBeal in a very, very... <laughs> Oh, and she's now married to Harrison Ford, right? And she's married to Harrison Ford. She is, yeah. Sorry, Suzanne. uh, Welcome to the podcast. Lots of tangents. (laughs) We don't know how to focus. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay. I'm okay with squirrels here and there. Yeah, good. Okay, good. So you you were watching for legit an after-school special? An ABC after-school special while managing what I was observing in my own environment. And there was one about this clinical social worker that went into a family's home and really worked on things with that family. And the outcome, of course, was always better at the end. Of course. Um, course. So I really tapped into what her role was in that moment. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to do. So I knew pretty early on that that was the direction I was headed in, not only because of my own personal observations of things, but just... Um, seeing someone in that type of role, that helping role, I thought if if I can use my my time on this in this on this earth in that way, that seems like an amazing use of time. So I, I geared all of my education and all of my experience in that direction from that moment forward. I mean, of course, there were teenage bumps in the road, but <laughs> but I geared it in that direction after I saw that ABC after school special. I'm smiling so hard. I'm smiling so hard because she's living proof that these little specials that we watched can really make the big impact that they were trying to do. One, and two, she knew what she wanted to do from a young age, which to me is always like a mate because I'm literally 40 and I have no idea what I'm doing in my life. So when I hear people (laughs) who know what they wanted at like 10, I'm like, yeah. No, it's it's really impressive actually that you yeah. not only wanted it, but then you followed it. Yeah. But, I mean, really, shout out to ABC after school specials. They Ay-oh. did leave an impact. I thought I mean I think that that's the reason I didn't do like crazy drugs was ABC after school specials. <laughs> hmm. And my mom who told me I was gonna die for sure. <laughs> She's like, if you try it, you're dead. Um anyway, so all right. So then you pursued it. Yeah. Now, can you tell us what is the specific kind of psychotherapy you focus on? What do you see patients for? So I mostly see women in the postpartum adjustment phase, um, and I see and I and I see women ranges of ages too. But my specialty really right now is in the postpartum realm, and I I chose that specialty after working with children and families at a children's hospital out in Washington State, and that's where I got my training um, because I saw kids coming in really traumatized. And one of the common themes was parents that really couldn't handle being parents. And I think for me going into private practice, I really wanted to focus in on how can I prevent more kids not having parents that are able to function in a way that these kids need. So that's why I chose that that specialty. Um, and it's it's been now almost close to nine years um, focusing in on maternal mental health. I suffered from a lot of postpartum, so I'm always fascinated. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. It's just, and I think, I, I think, um, I want to call both of you Bean now. Um, Please do. <laughs> do it. Do it. Bean one and Bean two. Bean Who's one and one? Bean two. Um, I think you speak to, I think a hundred percent of women experience some level of postpartum adjustment. And it just depends on what, level clinically that they need. And and some need more intensive care than others, but I think 100% of women could benefit from some postpartum care. Especially because they are checking you your whole time you're pregnant nonstop. And there are other people who aren't pregnant, but they're guiding you along the whole way. And then you have the baby and they're like, see you later. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Best of luck. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Suzanne, why do you think that 
I mean, I know this is a big question, but just your take on why is maternal fetal health from a emotional and psychological standpoint, not more discussed? Like, why are we not prepared for what happens to you emotionally and psychologically after you have a child? I just think our society isn't geared to allow for a pause for women and for parents in general. Mm. We're asked to return to our lives as if nothing happened when the most significant thing happened. Um, Mm. And women are asked to go back to work. Parents are asked to go back to work almost six weeks postpartum, or you have to take unpaid leave, which is nuts. So I think our society isn't built to care. I think other countries are more prepared for that postpartum phase. Um, United States has one of the worst outcomes for women psychologically postpartum. And so um, I know women of color is even worse. Women of color is, is dramatically worse. Um, And I think it just is our system set up. We're asked to go back to work. We do not have resources to provide the psychological psychological care that's needed. Um, and it's, it's one of the main reasons why women die is by suicide. Um, not because they have a physical ailment postpartum. It's by suicide. In the United States, in the United States, it's really heartbreaking. And that must be such, I mean, I think it's so beautiful what you're doing, but I can't imagine the emotional toll that takes for you to have to go through that and walk with people in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, we need as therapists, psychotherapists and any care provider really needs to focus in on how do I care for myself outside of this space? And when I leave Mm -hmm. the space of therapy, what, what are the rituals that I do to kind of leave it? Um, but that right. took years of practice for me to get to a place of balance with that. Sometimes, you know, I did take the stress on too much and it did have negative outcomes for me, but you learn that as you go. <laughs> you were mentioning that you're an empath earlier. Um, yeah. And that's how you were enter parties. I'd imagine that that's incredibly beneficial in these environments for you as a therapist, like to bring that into your, do you mix those two worlds or you try to like shut that off so you can be just hearing with their words? Clinical. Clinical. Good word. Oh, so I feel like it's a blend. It's kind of hard to completely shut off, but um, when I'm in my clinical space, I I turn that clinical intuition dial up so that it's almost like a download where someone may present postpartum. And I feel like it's almost a download of you need to ask them this question. There's no reason to ask them this question. Got it. (laughs) But I just go, okay, here we go. I'm going to ask it. And usually it's spot on um, that they need to talk about a certain thing. And that client will either tell me I'm not ready to talk about this or we'll make connections to things that maybe they haven't made connections to before. And it's usually in the form of questions that I ask. You said a really good term, clinical intuition. Tell us again, what do you mean by clinical intuition? I think, well, you come into the psychotherapy world with a a scientific lens, right? Where you have these formulas to care, like cognitive behavioral therapy is a formula that I use in my practice. But there's also something that I can't describe within the context of a textbook or in a formula that maybe other psychotherapists would use, like EMDR or other forms of practice. It's my intuition telling, my clinical intuition telling me that maybe someone's a suicide suicide risk that isn't Mm. really saying that they are. Um, It's just a sense of there's something else here and I need to ask these Mm. questions around it. And I, and I usually trust that intuition to, to ask the question, even if it's uncomfortable. Suzanne, do they talk about intuition in med school? No, not a lot. Although I got my psychology today magazine and you would not believe what's on the cover. What? What? Can I show you? Yes. Oh, you have it right it there. Says, Hello. 
Oh, intuition. Oh. When to trust your sixth sense about danger, romance, health, and more. Yes. Who even believe this? I I love this. I just picked it up today out of my <gasps> yeah. box, and I thought, oh my gosh, we're moving in a direction. We don't. We. It was never in my training that intuitive muscle that you speak to, that your body of work, Maury, is so important to looking at that that practice um, and mm-hmm. using your intuition muscle more often than not. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm just so thankful that it's actually on the cover of Psychology Today. Wow. It means that we're, we're, we're moving back to a direction, I think, that we were founded in, but we moved away from it because of the scientific model, which was also important, but it mm-hmm. puts us in boxes and it and if we're only in those boxes, we can't look to other ways to practice. And that mm-hmm. I don't think is helpful. The science is important yeah. to keep people safe and to put parameters in place that we're doing no harm. But we also need more space to look at other models of care and more, and to be more open to that too. The last mm. statement you made, actually, before you even made that connection, I said, oh, that sounds exactly like what Bean does when you were saying that you yeah. sort of encourage them also to find their intuition and find what, what their inner knowing is. Mm-hmm. So how do you guys think that um, you guys overlap or mm. when one person is more needed versus what, what, talking about you and Suzanne, when one's skill set is more applicable versus the other person's skill set? How would I pick yeah. if I if I need a healer? Ooh, I want to hear Suzanne's answer because I'll say where I have okay. imposter syndrome around what I do. Suzanne <sighs> knows this really well because sometimes I'll call her when I'm going to write something or say something and I'll be like, uh, is this okay to say I'm not a therapist? And I think I have this, this um, inner critic voice that's reflecting all of the naysayers out there around an intuition coach being like, where's your licensing? Like, you're not a right. therapist. What are you talking about? So I would love to hear your answer first. I mean, where do you see intuition coaching and teaching people to trust their inner wisdom um, overlapping with or being a complement to psychotherapy and what you do? Well, I definitely think it's a complement to what I do because the language around intuition isn't there in my world. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we need a language for it. And I think that's what you're bringing to the table is um, a common language that we can all go, oh, yeah, that's that's what we're talking about. When I say, what does your intuition say? When I say that in session, and I think I say it more now than I ever have since we we've had our relationship, oh, I grown that. into our professional relationship. And I've grown yeah. into the use of that language more, especially when I'm talking about cognitive distortions, where this is where, a story. Can you define that? So it's essentially stories that we tell ourselves that fuel anxiety, that fuel depression. And um, for instance, I have a postpartum mom in front of me who can't breastfeed. I'm a bad mom because Mm. I can't breastfeed. So that's Mm -hmm. a good example of a cognitive distortion of that all or nothing thinking. Either I breastfeed Mm -hmm. and I'm a good mom or I'm a bad mom. Mm. So what would help though, I think when we are looking at reframing and what I work on is reframing, what, what actually does that mean to you? I think what would cut through the noise of that is what does your intuition say about mm. this moment <laughs> for mm-hmm. you? Does your intuition say that breastfeeding is, is going to be the only way to feed a, your baby and take care of you at the same time? And mm-hmm. so I do think there's a space for both, but I think for you to bring to the world a language around how to use intuition in, in a way that's effective in their life is, is an arm almost of cognitive behavioral therapy. So I do mm. see an overlap there. 
I love that. And for me, it's honestly the flip side of it, which is, you know, in my work, what I always say is we can't hear our intuitive wisdom because the noise of our limiting beliefs, which you called, what are they in, in the clinical Cognitive language? distortions. Cognitive distortions, mm -hmm. which I'm now learning are limiting beliefs. Got it. So yeah. the noise of those cognitive distortions is so loud it's that so loud. it out does, it's so much louder than it blocks out the intuition. So where healing is necessary with a psychotherapist and with other forms of, of healers mm -hmm. is to go in and help reduce the noise of those distortions so that you can hear your inner wisdom. So you can heal those traumatic experiences that created right. the distortions. I'm loving this overlap. There is overlap. And then that helps to, I think, more easily reframe that thought when they can get yeah. to that inner voice instead of yeah. me saying what's a good reframe here yeah they are able to then get to the reframe in a, a quicker way in a more mm -hmm. organic way in a more organic way too yeah i really love also that some of the terminology that suzanne uses uh like you were just saying it can um apply to the same language you use and they can be interchangeable because yeah. I think being a lot of the stuff you do often can feel woo woo to people. But when you're able to tie it into this scientific clinical work, it's like, yes. oh, we're all sort of on the same page here. Yes, yeah. so true. Yeah. And it's honestly so validating for me because so much of this <laughs> method I intuited. I mean, if, right. we, yeah. if we're being honest, it came from really intuiting what people needed to hear this this higher self, this intuition. So to have a psychotherapist say, no, 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 this is actually part of cognitive behavioral therapy is so validating and wonderful. And I think you being so open to it has been so empowering for me. Are there therapists out there who are the opposite, who feel somehow challenged by or negative about um, spiritual work, about people sure. like me trying to do this work? Like Suzanne, do you ever encounter even colleagues who you can't talk to them about being intuitive with? Well, I think that's what, <laughs> that's an interesting Loaded question. question. Name your colleagues. <laughs> I think there's- Give us names, addresses, social security numbers. Children's names. <laughs> You'll show it up at the house. We got house. your back. We got your back, Suzanne. It's bean yep. and bean to the rescue. Oh, I love it. Um, so no, I mean, I think there is camps for- everyone. I think there's a place for everyone. Um, I definitely think there are those psychologists, psychotherapists that would not jump on the intuition. I bet psychiatrists Maybe. really don't lean into that. Yeah. I think it's harder because it's such a medical model and right. they need evidence to, right. to support what they do, right. which is both protective of the patient, but also it doesn't allow for an opening to new ideas. And so mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't know how to answer this question completely, but I think there's, there's those of us that are open to, to new ideas yeah. and new yeah. ways of healing. And I think you will attract those patients to you as well, those clients to you as well, where mm. others may not be, and they're more manualized treatment providers. And you will have those that that maybe need or want that type of provider. And I think there's a fit for that too. You're being very um, PC about this whole I, thing. I yes. am. I yes. am. <laughs> but no, there. I think there's space for all of it. Definitely. Um, yeah. I just think I wish there was more of an opening to new ideas in a medical model. Agreed. Yeah. Especially like when you look at practices like Reiki or acupuncture. Exactly. They have a lot of healing qualities, but the medical model is finally opening the, the door a little bit to acupuncture, but it's been- Which is thousands and thousands of years old. It's not like oh, it right. was just yeah. popped up. Right. So Suzanne, you're you're saying something that is really taking me to the biggest question I want to ask you, Ooh. which is how do you find the right therapist for you? And I ask this because I think as an intuitive person, and when I talk to my family members or friends that are healers, intuitives, um, you know, are engaged in this energy work in any way, uh, they've often had negative experiences with therapists because- therapists will either not understand that aspect, they won't even allow that modality in, or if you're dealing with 
you know, someone who's trying to diagnose you with something, it starts mm-hmm. to get into this really gray area of diagnosing, you know, people who are like, oh, I'm channeling information with like, well, are you hearing voices? <laughs> right. So how mm-hmm. do you find the right? That's a that's just I'm asking from an intuitive standpoint, but a more general question is, how do you find the right therapist for you? What is the process to do this? And and I'm asking for people who maybe are trying and it's been frustrating, mm-hmm. maybe are in therapy right now and they just, just don't feel like it's a fit. Like, what do you do to find that fit? I think it's definitely trial and error, but don't give yeah. up. There is a place for everyone. Um, I, th- I think word of mouth um, referrals mm-hmm. are often better than, than Google search because mm-hmm. you know someone has appreciated that therapist and found them helpful if they are referring them to a friend or a colleague or whoever. Um, I think it's, it is like to speak your language, it's listening to your intuition. If you meet with a, a psychotherapist or a psychologist and your immediate response is, I can't share my deepest, darkest mm-hmm. thoughts, feelings with this person, there's no way I will be comfortable. Chances mm-hmm. are, you won't be comfortable in the second, third, or fourth session. I feel Mm -hmm. like it does happen right in the beginning session with that, Mm -hmm. that psychotherapist. And, and I think it's just a matter of, okay, this isn't the right fit for me. However, there will be someone and I, and Mm -hmm. if you're struggling and you need that type of support, I would just say, try again. And Mm -hmm. I, I would hope it wouldn't take one, two, three, four people I would hope it'd be the second person that you try would be a better fit. And the other Mm. thing is if you're not leaving, um, I mean, there are hard sessions. So sometimes you do feel worse after a session before you get better. (laughs) I almost always feel worse, to be totally honest, just because you address things that you're sort of avoiding and they come out and you feel really heavy and it takes time. Mm -hmm. And then you have to process, which requires a lot of energy. And then you feel better the next day. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And that's really, I wouldn't want someone to leave just because they feel worse after a session. I would want them to feel like, okay, I left feeling like this is hard, but I'm processing it and I have some tools to use to help yeah. me cope. I like to think of finding a therapist as like dating. Like you have to give them a chance. You don't have to like shut off, shut, but you have to be yourself. And if you don't feel like it's reciprocal or it's working or it's comfortable, you move on. If it is, you give it more of a chance. Doesn't mean it has to be forever or it has to end the next session. Just has to right, work. Right. Um, I was going to ask, is it good to go in there with like a goal or a North Star that you're reaching for? You know, like do you, does is progress around something you're trying to work on a good measure of if you found the right chemistry or the right therapist? I think so. I think like I tell my my clients, I don't want to be seeing you for the next 10 years. I mean, I like you. (laughs) I like the relationship, but I would like you to feel better in six months. And if you don't, then we need to talk about this. So even if it's small incremental changes, small incremental progress, it's still progress. And, And my hope is that the processing that happens in session and then the tools that I leave them with they're taking out into the world and they're functioning better day to day. And if yeah. people aren't in six months or not doing that in six months, I would question mark it. I think that's also specific to your area of work in particular. Cause like I said, at the top yeah. of the hour, I think therapy should be required by law. I think everybody needs to be in therapy, whether you have issues or not, life is challenging and you need help and you need tools. But I think in I your agree. area with maternal health, postpartum is vital to make sure you're watching and seeing improvement. Or progress. Yeah. Yes. True. Suzanne, how do you know it's time for a therapist? It's always so there's so many different reasons. (laughs) Besides it being legally mandated in (laughs) Bean's world. I like Melissa's mandate. (laughs) I think there's so many different signs um, and severity to an issue. However, simply put, if if there are themes or events in your life that continue to happen and they're difficult and they're interfering with your ability to function day to day, whether it be in a relationship or a work environment or your home life or just friendships in general, then I think that's 
where psychotherapy could be really beneficial. Beautiful. And then I don't, I, I think we'd be completely remiss if we did not ask, what about specific to postpartum? How, what do you look for to know that that's something that's happening if you've recently had a child? I think there's so many different things. Um, I wish, again, to Melissa's point, <laughs> I think every woman should be assigned, every person should be assigned uh, a therapist to their family. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. However, there are specific signs that if after the initial six weeks of just tiredness and sadness or just identity shift and shift in general does not wear off and you're not able to function, get out of bed, um, not tend to the baby at all, there's specific things that a partner can look for. Um, and with women having being in postpartum, I think partners definitely need to assess and be aware of those changes so they can ask for help for their partner. I think that's where family members really need to be aware of signs and symptoms because it's really difficult for um, the postpartum mom to ask and advocate for herself. Um, so I think just the awareness of family members knowing those signs and, and seeking help. And you said the signs were, I just want to make sure we're clear for family members. What are they looking for? So signs of not taking, not taking showers, not getting mm -hmm. out of bed, um, mm -hmm. crying all day, every day, um, mm -hmm. talking, you know, not, not showing any signs of interest in the baby at all. Mm -hmm. um, and any, signs that they want to harm themselves or or are having scary thoughts and and lots of scary thoughts can show up and be mm -hmm. so jarring to the new parents that um, they're afraid to ask for help because they're so scary mm -hmm. to them and they think there may mm -hmm. be risk of their baby being taken away um, but the the biggest thing that I can say is ask for help and support those that are in the postpartum world, OBGYNs hopefully are trained in this area that those scary thoughts are normal. <laughs> However, mm -hmm. you need you need to say them out loud to someone to help you process what is actually happening. But like we said, there's not a ton, excuse the lawnmower in my background, there is not <laughs> a ton of post care, even with your OBGYN. So I think there it is. is really important. I really love your idea of the family therapist so that even everybody has... Um, adjust an adjustment phase, like the kids mm -hmm. included, other siblings included, the husband. Yeah. Um, so I think I love that idea. So I changed my, my, the top of my show thing to be uh, family law should be, family therapy should be required by all. For all yes. families. For all families. Well, I think too, when you talk about things like not feeling connected to your baby or having dark thoughts, there's probably so much shame that comes right. with that experience, mm -hmm. that to utter those things out loud feels like the, the end of you. Like you can't say, I don't feel connected to my child. Who says that? Although a lot of us feel that. Yeah, I would love to normalize that for, for women. Yeah. And, and there are, there's some information out there, but we need more of it. And, and all women need to hear this message. <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget when my daughter was born, my firstborn, and I was in the hospital room and, you know, I think she was born around, she was born at 4.11 a.m. And it was around, they had taken her there. and, the, you know, you were, Bean was in the waiting room. Um, both, both births, you were in the waiting room. Oh, yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> but they had taken her and they, you know, bathed her and they brought her back. I was sleeping and they put her in the bassinet next to me. It was around 7.30 in the morning. And I remember I woke up and I looked over at the bassinet. And I had this overwhelming feeling of like, that's a stranger. Yeah. And then I had this, my first feeling was resentment about not towards her, but towards like, why am I expected to immediately love this person? Right. I don't even know. Like I was angry yeah. and it was so freaking scary because I was like, whoa, what <laughs> is going on with me? Why don't right. I feel all this tenderness and love towards this baby, which immediately they put her on my chest and she started nursing it like 180 thankfully but it doesn't always no. happen that quickly no. and that's okay it doesn't. and you look at the messages that 
are out in social media of this perfect parent and, you know, and just in general and what that looks like and how, how jarring that is to a mom that's already feeling disconnected to her baby. And that's, that's another big factor when, when looking at this. And we didn't have to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have to deal with that. I mean, I bet though it could be a source of solace for a lot of people who find um, similar people in similar situations, but I bet all this comparison and yeah. uh, shout out to our last episode, perfectionism in terms of parenting right. and being a new mother and what it looks like and sounds like must be so challenging when you're already in the thick of it and struggling with postpartum thoughts. Yeah. Part of my postpartum plan typically is blackout, no, no social media. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> For a little while. For a little yeah. while. Because that message is just so hard. Yeah. Suzanne, how do you notice in your practice that social media, I mean, you've been practicing prior to the rise of it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, obviously you're still practicing. Have you noticed social media having bearing any kind of results or consequences on people's mental health in your practice? Absolutely. In, In particular, in the postpartum phase, they, you know, if you are geared toward negative messaging about yourself, and being a bad mom, mm, you are no. going to find messages no. that support that um, mm. and images that support that, which is so devastating. Um, and then the other mm. piece that I've noticed in the last decade of, of working in this space is, is apps that are that are supposed to be helpful, and, and maybe for some they are, but there are sleep apps, nursing apps, and if you aren't on target with those apps, it, it can become oh. an OCD. Oh type situation where, where you are obsessively checking, looking, and then that's a whole other lane that we have to look at and treat too. Mm. Um, so there's, crazy. there's, I mean, it's helpful, but also can be harmful. I mean, I think there's good information yeah. out there, but also it's difficult to shut that off if you're geared in that direction. And that becomes part of the treatment plan is let's look at yeah. what, what are you using? What are you looking at? And what's helpful? And is it harmful to you? Yeah. I, it feels so inorganic. I find in my practice, all of this data that we have access to, you know, tracking apps and social media, whatever it is, really, really disconnects us from our intuition. Because then we're looking for numbers and data to tell us. My husband and I wear the whoop. It's like this thing you wear around your wrist and it tracks your heart rate and your sleep. And he used to, when he'd wake up in the morning, I'd say, how you, how did you sleep? He'd say, I think okay. And then he'd pick up his phone to check his whoop app. And I'm like, no, 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 no. How does your body feel? So it does block you from really intuitively, well, how do I feel? What's my, you know, what do I think my baby needs? Yeah. How is my baby different than these other babies? So I, I just think it really blocks you from channeling that intuition yeah. in organic ways. Yeah. And that's really what I work toward with, with women is trusting their own voice in a world mm-hmm. full of a lot of information and a lot of images. And that's a really difficult thing to do when we're all very insecure in the beginning. We're new at this. Yeah. And, and and it's like anything else. You need And your hormones are raging. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. raging. Even if you have a good sense of self prior to it, you're like uh, in some other world at that point. Absolutely. No sleep. I love that. I it's, I can't stop seeing the similarities between what you two between you two and what you guys do. And I can totally see how you both would be beneficial for the other one in terms of giving one another advice. I'm still yes. curious though. Like, when should someone, I someone should get as much healing as possible. But like, what would be the difference? I and you're so postpartum specific. But in terms of therapy versus what Maury does, when does one go towards one direction? versus the other direction. Either one of you, I guess, could really answer this. I mean, I'll talk about when I really refer people to therapy. I think that, you know, there's so much of what I do. I say I'm a purpose and intuition coach, but so much of that is about healing old negative limiting belief systems, right? Um, Distortions. What were they again? Cognitive, God, why do I keep forgetting? Cognitive, Cognitive distortions. Um, so, so much of my work is about that. But I think where I draw the line, for me at least, is one, when the trauma feels so overwhelming and so significant, you know, if there's any kind of, you know, 
large scale abuse, if there's, you know, if there's trauma that feels like there needs to be a very specific trauma therapist that can really get in here and help, Uh I will always recommend. And then my rule has been from the very beginning. And I say this to my clients, if there's any talk of self-harm of suicide, you know, first of all, I would have to, if it's suicide, make sure the authorities are aware because then that's a life at risk. But really, if it it goes down that road, then 100%, I'm always looking to refer them to therapists because that's where I think you need a clinical mindset and help around a structure for addressing those things to ensure the safety of that client from my Mm -hmm. perspective. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. And I think you, with your intuitive background and your language, I think you intuitively know when that time and space yeah. and direction is needed. Um, yeah. And if your clients are walking away feeling more healed and whole, that's the only that's the only validation I would hope that anyone in this space would need. Um, yeah. and, and I know that that is the case um, with your work. Well, I appreciate that. I get the question sometimes from my clients that makes me really uncomfortable, and I've talked to you about this, where they'll ask, okay, so should I stop seeing my therapist now? Or Mm -hmm. um, we're making way more progress than I was making in therapy. You're like, you're welcome. Well, and that instead of that feeling like a pat on my back, it does make me slightly uncomfortable because I never want to replace a, a psychotherapist. However, I will say this, and Suzanne, if I'm being controversial or unfair, I mean, controversial, I don't care, but if I'm being unfair, let me know. Um, I do think we were talking earlier about how much certain areas of the medical field and psychotherapy don't open to other modalities of healing and don't include the conversation of energy, of spirituality, um, Mm -hmm. of intuitive wisdom, of conformity, of assimilation, right? Like all these factors that we need to think about. And so there has been areas where I think therapy is sometimes failing people if it refuses to be open to that. And I think that's why I'll have clients who say we're making way more progress because we're, you know, exploring all of those things all at once and trying to get to the heart of it maybe a little faster because it's more open. Is that fair? I think, I think that's fair. I think, I think science and I think most psychologists, most psychotherapists that are open, even just a little bit, would say science put us, science put us on the map in terms of a modality that we wanted to be, psychology wanted to be seen in the same space as surgery or physical well-being. So we had to use that as an avenue However, it can be limiting in our space too, in a modality that started in more a spiritual realm. Psychology started in a more spiritual space. However, we moved to the science arm because of of the parameters in our society that that made us validated or not. Um, So I think... I think for you, because there's an opening to that spirituality piece and that intuitive piece, you're able to see the individual as a whole and not, mm. man, not so, not manualize it so much so that it's that, that maybe those people that have said that to you, they felt limited by the practice and by the modality mm. that was used. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where my hope is seeing intuition on psychology today is that there is a movement mm-hmm toward this spiritual lens being included, this intuitive lens. And I love your body of work so much because it does give a language to that. Um, Mm. And I think that's probably what your clients are speaking to, that Mm -hmm. um, my psychotherapist isn't maybe open to these other, this, this other use of language to help me heal. Yeah. But when they are, those are like the superhero therapists like you, where it's like you can't even put the magic in a box. You can't describe what you're getting from that therapist. But not only are you getting the years of experience and the clinical knowledge, but that intuitive lens and that empathy and that connection, I really think that recipe is what can make therapy so effective and that there are certain therapists truly like yourself that are invaluable in that way. Do you openly use, Suzanne, this question's for you. Do you openly use that type of language with um, clients like, or patients rather, um, like 
you have an intuitive sense, you're an empath. Do you discuss that or you just yeah. sort of pull on, uh, yeah, you just sort of pull on what you're working with quietly. Right. I do. It I think that's another difference between you two, you know, Maury shouts it from the <laughs> rooftops and you sort of just incorporate it a little more quietly because you have to keep up with this science-based practice. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we let you go because we've taken far oh, yes. too much of your time. This has been so fascinating. <laughs> I could ask a thousand questions. I know. I want to talk a little bit about where we're seeing psychotherapy headed, particularly with the rise of the popularity of psychedelics. Um, Suzanne, what are your thoughts in general around psychedelics in therapy? I will quickly do an anecdote here where I have done a couple psilocybin journeys with a shaman that have been guided um, life-changing, truly life-changing wow. around the way mm -hmm. I see the world, I see the universe, I see my connection oh. to things. Um, and when I first told Suzanne I was going to go do the first one, <laughs> she was like, uh, what? And with who? <laughs> and what do you mean? Uh, and we had a really good conversation and debate where we both landed in a place where we both felt good about it. But I would love for you to just share with our listeners as a therapist, what do you think about and what are you seeing in your field around the use of psychedelics in treating things like anxiety and depression? And they're doing studies on veterans and, and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? So I think it's it's definitely developing. Um, my only hesitation was your safety, <laughs> but, but I think- <laughs> Yeah, it's real. I think that's a real yeah, concern. Totally though. real. Yeah. Yes. Um, but no, I think I think when the NIH began doing studies on treatment resistant depression and anxiety using ketamine, um, they had yeah. really good outcomes with with reducing suicidality. And mm -hmm. I think that lends to a hopeful lens where psychedelics and um, that form of treatment could potentially be life saving for a lot of people who struggle with treatment resistant depression. I mean, they've tried multiple different lanes of therapies and nothing has worked. Right. So I'm hopeful around it. And I think it's, it's an opening also in a different kind of lane that I wouldn't necessarily think the NIH would embrace, but because, yeah. which is interesting, I think because it's being embraced and studied and they're showing significant outcomes, I think it's going to be more seen in the next 10 years in practice. Um, yeah. So I mean, isn't that science? It's evidence-based. Doesn't that it become is. science? It is. And, and the fact that there's an opening to it, to the fact that psychedelics are, are even being studied in this way. Yes. Yeah. I love the, I love the, the connection with science and, and maybe a slant that wouldn't be recognized maybe 20 years ago. Well, LSD was really proliferating in the, in the sixties and seventies. I don't know. I've told you, I've probably made you watch this, but Fantastic Fungi is one of my oh, favorite movies. Do we have this conversation? You need to watch I, I don't it's know. Mind I don't blowing. I read on the podcast. Mind we, we, blowing. Everyone needs to go watch everyone. Fantastic Fungi immediately. Okay. But one of the things you're going to learn a lot. One of the things About I the learned Earth. is that, yeah. But one of the things I learned is that LSD use was obviously, you know, big during the psychedelic era of the 60s and 70s, and it was making people too peace loving to be pro Vietnam War. <laughs> Look at Susan. And so, <laughs> and so the government needed to find a way to villainize it. So they made all these crazy videos of people like having crazy psychedelic trips and talking about how dangerous it is. And then obviously coming down on it hard from a criminalization standpoint, wow. because people were getting too peaceful because <laughs> these psychedelics were showing them that we're all connected. Um, and so it's been criminalized. So lots of reasons, but, and definitely wow. watch the movie. But what I will say, Suzanne, we talked about this after my first journey, you came over, I'll never forget. We were sitting in my room and I like told you the whole journey. Right. And your <gasps> eyes were like, Whoa. You haven't even told um, me the whole journey. Suzanne. I haven't? No. I'm, and I've been dying to hear it. I've like, I'm, I'm obsessed shocked. with it. But I'll <laughs> tell you this. I'll say just this part. You know, when you say that it has helped veterans and people with postpartum and depression, from my experience of, of using psilocybin to help treat anxiety, the reason I believe that's the case is because these this psychedelic medicine 
is really rewiring your brain and showing you an entirely different way of perceiving the world, which is this. It is much larger than we understand it. We are much more connected to the source that we came from and to each other, like an interlacing web, than we know and understand. And because of that, we are loved and supported in a way we can't even grasp. And we have chosen this journey on this earth in this body. And it really reminds you how to be present and grateful for the experience of being in the human body um, because you're aware that there's more to it and mm -hmm. that you are here for a short time to experience it. I am so here for all of this. I feel like that's also <laughs> a lot of the message that you get from that movie. You're like, we are all, everything is connected yes. to everything. Imagine yes. if we all just did one session. <laughs> that's what I say. want. That's the message here is everyone go, go hit it up, bros. No, I'm kidding. But I do want to hear about your journey, Bean. Maybe we should do an episode where we talk about your flipping journey, maybe sure. even live. So I'm getting, I've never heard the story and I'm dying to okay. hear it. All right, done. <laughs> done. Um, Anyway, so Suzanne, I know I just, that's just, I would think that, you know, then it changes your perspective when wow. you're looking at your own trauma and your own place in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm wow. curious to see where the research goes. Um, yeah. It's been mostly done on just treatment resistant depression. So I wonder if it will open up in different lanes, but yeah. I love to, I love that you, just you experimenting on yourself has created space for, 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 for other, if you don't experiment on yourself, how will you know what you like? You know what I mean? Exactly. How do you know? Maybe I'll experiment on myself next time. Hi <laughs> do it in a safe, but, but do truly I setting. do have to say yeah. safe setting with, with someone you trust yes. who does have experience with it yes. and knows what to do. That if I it think goes is wrong. critical. Like yes. all of that is, it's not about a party drug. No, no. it really is about treating things. It's what I'm here for <laughs> in a mindful way. All right, let's wrap this up. Bean, I know we, uh, we had a question from what? Oh, actually our producer sourced a question because we had, we were like super stoked that we had our first guest on and they, <laughs> and they knew you are a therapist. So they sourced, um, a question from friends. I'm going to pull it up right quick here. Here we go. Dear Maury, Melissa. Oh, I've been in therapy for three years following a divorce. I originally had one therapist for six months before switching to my current one, whom I adore. She's helped me build a skill set for being mindful of my own needs and shown me how to draw boundaries in the real world. But as is probably the case with a lot of others, I feel like something is missing. She helps me express myself and develop mindfulness practices, but doesn't really hold space for spirituality in the way that I'd like. I've gotten a little pushback when bringing up your more talking about you, Maury work. Mm -hmm. How do I tell my therapist that I need everything she's done for me, but also this additional element? Hmm. Or maybe can you just have both? But I guess who goes first? I don't know. Not me. You can start. Oh boy. <laughs> I think I would question that the therapist, the psychotherapist is questioning whether or not there's space for both, especially if if you're finding this a helpful modality for right. you too, that even though it's not what we call in this world evidence-based, it's still a healing modality that is working for you. So I would, I would continue to question and not worry about kind of that power over dynamic that sometimes happens in a medical mm. model <laughs> that I would wonder, I want to keep bringing this up and I need respect for this space too. Um, and mm. if you can't provide that for me, I might need to seek alternative care. Mm. Um, so I think if someone is expressing that this is helpful, and I, and I understand the psychotherapist maybe questioning the modality as well, where, hey, can you show me how this is helpful to you? But I think it's really important that there's a level of respect and an opening for other other healing pieces as part of yeah. a, as part of the journey. I love that you brought up um, the hierarchy piece, not assuming a level of authority they have over you. Someone who's healing you, any kind of healer, including a, a clinician, needs to be walking al alongside you. 
It's not a hierarchy. It's not an authority model. And I think that you went right where I was going to go, which is we have to stop allowing other people to define our truth for us. What is true for you is true for you. And being centered in that truth and speaking up for that truth is part of your healing journey. In fact, if you're not able to speak your truth, then you are continuing to practice the thing that's harming you with the person that's supposed to be healing you. So I love that you empowered people to really think about their therapists as people who are walking alongside you. It's not an authority model. If you feel that you're not being fully seen and heard and valued, that's not the person for you. Your truth is paramount. Absolutely. And that's that's healing. Speaking your truth is the ultimate healing. Absolutely. Oh my God. What a perfect place to end. Suzanne, you wrapped that up in a neat bow, Suzanne. She did. See, she's a pro. Perfect. You're in. We love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are awesome. You made it easy. (laughs) I hope so. I don't know. No, I know it. So that means you'll come back if we ask you to come back at some point. Yes, I will. I don't, I don't know what I'll talk about, but yeah, I'll, I'll come back. <laughs> Before we lose you though, where can people yeah. find you if they want to yes. learn more about your work? Okay. So I'm at Modern Motherhood Pause, which is my Instagram handle. It has some content and I'm coming out with a postpartum series that will be attached to that at some point. And then also I'm at, I, I have my private practice. So you can look me up on psychology today. Amazing. We will link to Suzanne's Instagram handle in the show notes. Okay. Suzanne, thank you again so much. Love you so much. Thank Miss you. you every day. Bye. Thank you for okay. doing this with us. Of course. This Bye. was awesome. Thank you. Bye. This has been another episode of Signal, the podcast that raises your frequency. This podcast is co-hosted by me, Maury Fontanez, and Melissa Grushka. Special thanks to my production team, Anushri Thekadeth, Arman Kassam, and Anais Islami. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. See you then.